today I've got back uh, Lucas Carson, who is uh, Senior Vice President at Atomic. We spoke a few months back, but um, he enjoyed the conversation so much. He wanted to come back and talk about some specific things. Actually, uh, some subjects that, um, one, I've written about quite a bit in the past, and one I've written about only once but quite recently. And we wanted to have a little chat about uh, containers and I guess containers kind of almost logical conclusion, serverless functions. Um, I guess let's start with a little bit of history maybe. I mean, containers are not conceptually anything new. Do you have any kind of no. uh, insights or knowledge about where they come from originally? Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, they're, they're hardly new. They've been around for decades. Uh, they just have not been nearly the, as popular uh, system administrators um, back in the BSD days were were jailing things, and mm. the jail concept in BSD is, is one of the predecessors to to what eventually became containers. And, um, you know, the idea of just being able to um, have lightweight uh, security um, containerization um, and not not allowing processes uh, access to to different parts of the system uh, is a very old concept okay and um, was there was there any period in the past where they they sort of had a, a spike of popularity obviously not to the scale of what we've had in the past couple of years but was there any time in the heady days of the I don't know the 70s the 80s the 90s when Everyone was going a bit crazy for them before, or not really. No, uh, they they were not something that people went crazy over. They were something that um, were always kind of difficult to use, difficult to implement. Um, BSD jails. I mean, it wasn't uh, it wasn't very hard to use them, but it it certainly was not very easy mm. to provision them um, the the way that Docker did. Docker's genius was in taking this. Um, decades-old concept um, and making it API-driven um, and very, very easy to provision mm. and manage and um, manage a bunch of them. So being able to do the um, uh, the file systems underneath them uh, in a uh, way that is um, declarative so that you can uh, state here's how I want my container to look and be able to spin it up quickly within seconds, uh, have, have that container or less than a second, have that container up and running, um, and provision the, the exact way that you wanted it to be. Mm. Um, that used to be a process that could take, uh, quite a while, um, when you were doing it by hand manually, uh, a few decades ago. So uh, being able to, uh, declaratively, um, create and manage your containers uh, was, was really Docker's genius. And uh, once that, once the developer and sysadmin community kind of saw that, it was one of these floodgate moments where an old technology became cool again almost overnight. And yeah. uh, you, you put it in the hands of developers and sysadmins and they instantly get it. They instantly see the value, instantly see um, the potential and uh, it, it took off like uh, a, one of the most amazing wildfires that we've ever seen in the developer community. The Docker project obviously is the most popular open source project in history. And mm -hmm. that, that is um, 
really uh, something really exciting and fascinating to watch. Um, it exploded in that popularity. And over the period of just a, uh, a few short years, it went from something that uh, people were just playing with to something that every developer uh, uh, in, in the world is trying to figure out how do we incorporate this into our daily practice. So, so it's, it's been really incredible. Your work with with Atomic, I mean, it's it's uh, it has some DevOps elements to it. I mean, people can go back and listen to the specific interview. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link somewhere. I can't remember a few months back. Um, sort of automation of various business processes, but one of those is services and, and DevOps. Um, how long how long has the company existed? This is leading to another question, but uh, how long has the company existed, or how long have you been with the company? <laughs> uh, I've been with the company for a couple of years, okay. um, so it's uh, it's it's pretty new to me. But the company has been around for a couple of decades. It's been around a long time. And and I guess I mean I don't know if you can speak any more than outside your time frame. But uh, with regards to um, client interest in using containers, or even wanting to ask you, like, do you do you use containers? Um, what, what would you say is kind of a, a rough sort of percentage increase of interest over the past two to three years? Well, I mean, it went from from nearly zero interest <laughs> yeah. uh, to to 100% interest. I mean, All right, okay. it, it's, it's nearly impossible to find um, a developer or development group that um, isn't either trying to figure out how to use containers or already using them mm. in some fashion. Uh, it may or it may not be in um, uh, use in production environments. It's, for some people, it is. For some, it isn't. But um, at least playing with them and, and toying with them, it's it's ninety nine point nine percent. Okay, and I mean, actually, I would say a few years. Well, not oh, I'm not sure if a few years ago, maybe eighteen months to two years ago. It was definitely one of those technologies that everyone was experimenting with, and then suddenly. Um, as far as we're aware, there were a lot more actually being actively used and in production. But I guess before we get yeah. into kind of the the, the trends and uh, what's next, let's ask the, the pragmatic question: Are there any any times when you you don't need containers and actually using them is probably complicating things, <laughs> or is it really kind of a use case all the time? Most of the time, anyway. Well, I mean, uh, obviously, um, containers uh, thrive in stateless situations. Mm. So it's always been a struggle to put con- put things like a database into yep. a container yep. Yep. because containers are intended to be ephemeral. And, of course, you can attach storage and, and stuff like that. But then you have to deal with uh, more issues, more complications. It's just not natural. Um, there are workarounds, there are solutions, but it's just not what it's intended for. It's intended for stateless uh, applications. And um, that becomes very problematic uh, when you're looking at things like uh, enterprise applications that, that were built 20 years ago yeah. uh, that were built uh, stateful. Um, and people are thinking, okay, well, we have to adopt containers, so we'll just stick our COBOL applications into a container, it doesn't really work that way. You can't yeah. just uh, rip and replace uh, old stuff, obviously. 
Yeah, for sure. Actually, I I think my main first sort of interaction with containers was actually working doing developer relations work for a, a database company that was making a database that would work better within containers. And at the time, they were one of the first to be doing it. And now most, well, not most, but a lot more are doing it. So, <laughs> so, so it was definitely always the initial problem. Uh, and, it, and it wasn't necessarily a problem that got solved. You just kind of distributed the problem. But uh, anyway, <laughs> that's uh, okay. So in terms of containers, I mean... Well, I, I guess the the sort of biggest news of the past year has probably been really kind of nailing and getting tooling around container orchestration that works. Um, and yeah, what I, I, there's obviously sort of two main players and then a couple of smaller players. Um, so the two main ones would be Kubernetes and uh, Mesos. And then you kind of have the the simpler options like Docker's own Swarm and, and a whole bunch of other kind of commercial options. But uh, do you have any uh, opinions or observations on those platforms, frameworks, projects, whatever you want to call them, over the past year? Um, yeah, I think that, that uh, a ton of the uh, headwind is going towards Kubernetes. I think mm. that in if if you look at things like um, uh, Kubernetes and Mesos and uh, you you look at kind of the history of Blu-ray versus the other co- competing <laughs> competing technologies. I think that Kubernetes is definitely the Blu-ray um, mm. of the bunch, um, and it's becoming more and more clear um, that, that that's the case. Not that things like Mesos uh, are inferior. I think that Mesos um, definitely had a uh, a head start and mm. is much mm. more mature in some ways. Mm. Um, but I think that uh, in terms of popularity, in terms of adoption, I think Kubernetes is, is pulling ahead very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, um, the thing that um, – I don't know if you were going to bring it up, but I was going to bring it up – is one of my predictions uh, last year um, or for this year was uh, that I got last year's prediction totally wrong. <laughs> Oh, okay. And <laughs> yeah, okay. Last year, I had made a prediction that um, Docker adoption was was uh, inherently flawed yeah. and going to stall out and kind of um, have significant problems. So I should just hang up this call now, really. Yeah, because, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what was that? I should just hang up this call now, really, because you know. Why, why should I trust oh, yeah, anything you say? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair enough. <laughs> um, the um, because fundamentally, uh, and I still believe this is true, is mm-hmm. that um, the approach of um, uh, stateless application development is a huge paradigm shift for for so many people out there, mm. and. Uh, being able to move from stateful monolithic applications into stateless uh, distributed um, uh, microservices is a huge, huge problem that um, is not going to be easily solved. Uh, and a lot of uh, problems arise from it, being able to successfully test 
systems that are distributed and stateless is much more difficult than testing um, a stateful monolithic application. And uh, so I, I saw the challenges that containers posed and I assumed, okay, there's people, once they actually stop um, experimenting and try to actually put this in production, they're going to see that they have way more trouble mm. than, than they expected, um, which fundamentally I believe that part of the equation is still true. I think yeah, it is yeah. um, a huge paradigm shift that people underappreciate the difficulty and challenges that they're going to face implementing this stuff. Yeah. What, uh, in retrospect, I think I got wrong about my prediction is that um, I believe that there's a headwind that's even stronger than the challenges that containers pro uh, technically uh, 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 bring. Hmm. So the headwind uh, that is pushing, in my opinion, container adoption even faster and further um, than, than anyone expected, including myself, is that Every single day, it seems that there is more and more mandates to move enterprise into the cloud. Mm. seems like these mandates are coming from investors, from executives, CEOs, uh, and they're, they, they seem you know, just overwhelming from the top down. We're going to move to the cloud. We're going to move 90% of our stuff to the cloud. We're going to get rid of you know, half of our data centers. We're going to, all these mandates, um, they, they are, are just increasing. And the mandates come from not necessarily the most technical of the uh, people involved, uh, but they're handed down to the technical people. So, you know, they, they might be um, thinking that if we move to the cloud, uh, it'll, it'll help um, OPEX versus CAPEX, um, the, that equation. And so these mandates come from kind of a business perspective and are handed to the technology people uh, who are supposed to implement this kind of stuff. And so when they're handed these mandates, they say, okay, I don't, where do I even go from here? What do I do? How do I execute on these uh, ideas? And right now, uh, the, the hottest topic, obviously, in, in technology right now is containers. Yeah. So containers, I think, are getting a huge headwind from um, uh, executive mandates on, on cloud adoption. I think that the promise of containers is that you bundle things up into containers, and then they can move to the cloud. They can move uh, between data centers. It, everything's easier. Um, and so people hear that promise, and, and it kind of... Um, it resonates with kind of the mandates that are going on. So I think that, um, Go ahead. It's actually, but it's actually that's actually um, a nice way of putting it. Like, there's often been this problem in trying to explain why a container is useful to to a non-developer. I mean, anyone who remembers developing like in the past ten years knows the irritation of setting up a machine and works on my machine, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and, and can see why a, a container is useful. But trying to explain why it's useful to someone who hasn't experienced that pain has often been. Um, a hard, hard, uh, hard to, um, hard to, uh, oh, I can't think of the right word. Hard to explain. That'll do. Um, but actually that, yeah. that quote you just said there about it enables you to move between infrastructures more easily. I mean, obviously it's actually exactly the same as what I just described, but 
it makes it more understandable to other people as well. Uh, someone doesn't yep. have to understand what developing is like to understand that they might want to move between infrastructure at some point. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, that's actually a good point. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, sorry, carry on. Yep. Go ahead. No, no, no ahead. please carry on. No, no, I was, I was going to please carry on. Well, um, the, there's another interesting, uh, part of these executive mandates that, that I think is, is, uh, really, really surprising to, to myself. Mm. Um, a little background about myself is that um, I, I was a computer programmer for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started a, um, uh, a startup for computer programmers. Mm-hmm. It was a platform as a service that was based on cloud boundary technology. Yeah. Um, we, we signed up over 100,000 developers um, and deployed over 100,000 applications on our platform. Mm. And uh, and we used a lot of container technology uh, in doing that. Mm. And one of the things that um, uh, at my startup we would always be uh, uh, explaining to people is that one of the big benefits of platforms as a service is, is uh, lack of vendor lock-in mm, because mm, mm. we're abstracting away the cloud infrastructure to the point where you could move an application between Amazon and Rackspace and Google Cloud mm. uh, with a click of a button because mm. infrastructure being abstracted means that uh, the the application workloads can just hop in between these different uh, infrastructure underlying platforms. So vendor lock-in was something that we were very um, gung-ho about. Uh, and it seems like these days every vendor out there is talking about the uh the benefits of of uh, avoiding vendor lock-in mm. and how you should avoid vendor lock-in and how vendor lock-in is such a bad thing and so i come from that background and i understand that um that message very well very intimately but what something that i'm finding very surprising uh, while talking to larger enterprise customers um, is that a lot of them are less afraid of vendor lock-in than you would expect. And yeah, Vendor fact, lock-in can make life easy. That... <laughs> Go ahead. Vendor lock-in can, can make life easier sometimes, I suppose. You just – yes, until it, there's a problem, it, it of course. It can but, make yeah. life easier. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, – and theoretically, it's it's scary because uh, you're you're locking yourself into a platform that could have problems, could mm. have bugs, could have a security flaw, could be more expensive. They could raise rates on you, mm. and if you're locked in, you have no choice. And so, um, to me, technologically, vendor lock-in is is a nightmare. Yeah, but. What I didn't realize is that that uh, nightmare is not a nightmare for the actual people implementing technology today. Yep, yep. It's much more of a nightmare that is made up by Silicon Valley <laughs> that doesn't actually resonate with the majority of uh, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies out there. Mm. The Fortune 1000 uh, are actually far more willing to be locked in mm. um, if there is uh, value 
to being locked in, speed to market, functionality, uh, features uh, within the cloud environment. A lot of these people, they instead of thinking, well, I'm afraid to get locked into Amazon because what if they go down or what if they uh, raise their rates? They, mm. they instead are, their mental equations are going, well, if I go with Amazon, then I can take advantage of Lambda and serverless and uh, S3 and these all these different kinds of um, uh, functionalities. And sure, I get it. Uh, they, they'll lock me in and I can't get them other places, but do I really want to build them myself? And so in their build versus buy uh, thinking, a lot of these larger enterprises are actually leaning more towards um, it's okay to get locked in because of the uh, those services or things that we don't want to build ourselves. Mm. And, and to somebody, go ahead. No, no, please, please, please. No, to, to somebody that is looking at it from a purely technical perspective, vendor lock-in is, is a horrible idea. From com- somebody coming from it from a more practical, pragmatic, I need to get this done by the end of the quarter perspective, <laughs> vendor lock-in is not nearly as scary um, as, as one might believe if, if you read all the uh, marketing material out there. And, of course, there is the uh, possibility of getting vendor locked in to to mostly to docker itself but <laughs> it may be an open source thing but it's still a it's still a, a vendor of some description uh even though there are other yeah, options I, available I think that yeah. the 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 vendor lock-in that i think people are more afraid of is uh is more around the infrastructure than yeah. the, than the than the software implementation because um uh having software vendors that can work across different infrastructure that can work on premise in a data center and mm. uh, on all the clouds on Google, on Amazon, you know, that has, um, even if the software is um, locks you into their way of thinking, it gives you more flexibility to move to cheaper, faster, better solutions. Mm. Um, so for example, if you're doing cloud foundry, you can have Cloud Foundry on Amazon. You can have Cloud Foundry on Google. You can have it in your own data center. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does it lock you into Cloud Foundry? Yeah, but it gives you more flexibility. Whereas yeah. if you commit to Amazon Lambda, then you know there's not really the flexibility to be moving off um, without uh, major changes. Well, you kind of you kind of uh, gave my my own used my own segue. I was going to kind of make this segue myself, and you made it for me, which was. Um, Moving on to, to serverless, which actually, first and foremost, I, I would be interested to hear your perspective on, we started with looking at whether containers were anything new. Serverless is a, is a sort of new word, but I'm actually also wondering conceptually, is it anything new as well? Um, I think that conceptually it, it certainly is, is new. Okay. Um, I think that the it is uh, a logical segue to the next step um, for, from containers themselves. Um, when I look at kind of um, the traditional monoliths migrating into a platform as a service, and in the platform as a service, you're still writing uh, 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 code for the entire server. Mm-hmm. 
uh, it can it, the whole application is contained within the platform as a service. Mm. But the platform as a service makes a lot of choices for you. So, for example, you can't choose load balancers when you're using a platform as a service. You have mm-hmm. to use the load balancer that uh, is provided for you. So you don't have a lot of choice when it comes to platform as a service. You have to fit your cookie into their mold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so platform as a service uh, uh, made things easier, made it less difficult to manage and run applications, but it then also uh, took away some options. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was great for simple applications, perfect for applications that didn't have a lot of complexity to them, um, where you didn't have to worry about you know what the load balancer was or um, having multiple different components all interacting with each other. Uh, but if you're building a blog, uh, a platform as a service is a great system because you don't want to have to deal with a lot of the, a lot of default choices are just, just fine enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when you're trying to take that into uh, complex applications, it's very difficult to kind of work backwards and try to use, put a complex application into a platform as a service because there's not a lot of choice in the, uh, a lot of the choices are made for you in how the application is built out. Mm. So I think that that's where containers came, picked up the concepts of platform as a service, but then uh, gave you the flexibility uh, because with containers, you could um, put whatever you wanted inside the containers. And it, it kind of created a division where developers could work within the containers and system administrators could uh, administer the containers themselves and not worry about what was going on inside of them somewhat. Mm. And so it kind of allowed uh, separate um, separation of, of the running and the building of the application. Um, and I think that that made a lot of sense, uh, especially for more complex applications that, that couldn't fit into the mold of platform as a service. And serverless takes it to kind of the next logical step in some ways um, and just takes snippets of, of code themselves and runs them. Um, it, it's almost a combination of containers with platforms of service because uh, with serverless, you're going back to the idea that you don't have a lot of control over uh, a lot of the execution uh, process mm. of uh, of the application, uh, which is a very PASI uh, way of thinking. With serverless, you write a snippet of code, and uh, the the serverless framework will put it into a container for you. And you can still define the container, uh, but there is kind of a layer of abstraction there, which allows you to kind of, it's kind of the the perfect marriage of the concepts of platform as a service with the concepts of containers. And it's actually, I mean, it's a concept that is a little newer to me and and sort of feeding into the world that you mentioned that some people also call it FAS, function as a service, which I don't know, (laughs) serverless sounds slightly better. Um, But at the moment, I guess the interesting thing about it is you're right. You alluded it to earlier, which is how we started this segue was that the lock-in is actually somewhat bigger at the moment. 
um, because most of the better options tend to be only by the the sort of three main cloud providers. There's a couple of open frameworks, um, again, basically that let you either switch between different providers or do it yourself, which then starts to somewhat defeat the point. If you have to set it up yourself and set up a server, then it's you might as well just <laughs> not bother really because that was kind of what you wanted to avoid. Um, although I, I think it is a slightly different paradigm. But um, and I, I think they're still relatively early days in this in this space. Like uh, I think even with um, with Lambda, they've only just started adding like the ability to use more of an IDE-like environment, uh, the ability not to have to li- like it up until sort of the past six months, you just had to literally post uh, paste code into a text box, which is not a very uh, not a way that most developers would like to work. And so, sort of tooling around the whole space has only really just improved. It's probably where containers were a year to eighteen months ago. Um, so, I mean, in terms of usage, do you know or do you have any experience of people using serverless much in production yet or are they still mostly experimenting? I, I'd say that the the majority of the production use in serverless is still uh, early days, smaller, you know, onesies, uh, smaller applications that, that aren't um, uh, mission critical mm. within a uh, Fortune um, I think that we're still in the kind of um, uh, early adopter days uh, mm. of, of serverless. Mm. But I, I do think that there is um, uh, the, the concepts behind serverless is, is really just updating the concepts behind platform as a service. Mm. And so uh, I think that the, uh, value proposition is very strong. Yeah. It makes sense. Uh, so I, I think that I, I believe it's an inevitable trend. It's something that uh, it's in early days, early adopter days, but is certainly um, inevitable mm-hmm. uh, as it as it adopt as it matures. You know, today it's still difficult to um, put complex applications within serverless. Um, a lot of the yeah. Um, for example, in, in Lambda, you can't have um, execution times going over a certain threshold, mm-hmm. and and so um, that's uh, you know limitations like that are show how early it is right now. But that doesn't mean that um, those limitations are going to be there forever as oh, no. as more serverless options come. Of course not. And and actually, I mean, um, before we move on to the the kind of the the what 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 you see is happening in the next six months to a year um what do you see as sort of obvious use cases for serverless uh, at the moment and moving forwards what where is it going to be useful or what aspects of an application is it going to be useful well i think that um as uh microservices become uh more and more understood and adopted uh, I think that microservices is where serverless is, is best suited. When you're trying to decompose large um, applications into smaller components that, that talk through APIs, um, that is a concept that um, lends itself extremely well to this movement. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
one of the things, you know, as easy as it is to use Docker, mm. uh, one of the downsides of, of using raw Docker as a, uh, as a everyday programmer is that, you know, you went from platform as a service, which gave you no flexibility mm. to containers, which gave you complete flexibility, but then it gave you the headache because you're still responsible for building those containers. Yeah, exactly. You're still responsible for running them and figuring them out. So now that's at first that was cool Mm. because, um, you know, you you had more flexibility and containers are cool. Uh, But uh, once you're doing it for a little while, you're going to get burnt out on having to configure Apache and tune (laughs) the the (laughs) database to work Uh, in containers and do all kind of, system administrator stuff that wasn't actually fun and, and you didn't want to do it. That's why you got into platform as a service in the first place was to not do that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you find yourself doing it all over again with containers. But at least it's e- so, more easy to reproduce it, I suppose. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's still there. And yeah. so serverless um, combines the flexibility of, of containers with the promise of PaaS, which is, Hey, I've got some code and I want to run it. Mm, mm. I don't want to care about the, um, you know, I don't want to tune Apache. I don't want to tune PHP um, and and figure out how PHP best runs within my Docker environment. Mm, you know, mm. I just want it to run. Um, that that um, mentality is, is what serverless is all about. Mm. So let's let's look forward. Um slightly um so and i guess uh you know hopefully hopefully we'll we'll have more success uh, for you <laughs> in a year's time what what would be your kind of uh i don't know one to three major predictions for containers and serverless in the next year where do you think the adoption will go and the the big changes that will really Make uh, make them more or less desirable as an option. I think that um, again, as I st- stated before, the big thing that I missed last year was the um, the cause effect of of cloud mandates. Mm. Um, cloud mandates are um, increasing; they are uh, extremely trendy. It's it's mm-hmm. the corporate thing to do. Um, uh, reducing data center footprints, moving into the cloud, you'd be incredibly surprised to hear some of the names of companies that are considering uh, uh, doing stuff in public cloud, locked in, vendor locked in uh, environments. It's just um, uh, the the uh, that trend is is really going to keep pushing things. Uh, and as they are um, pushed into, so so that, that one prediction there is is that the the cloud mandates are going to continue, which is uh, continue going to continue pushing headwind into containers. Uh, container adoption is going to keep growing, um, and I think that the the longer container adoption is around the stronger the serverless uh, movement's going to become because uh, developers don't want to be configuring Apache and, and 
um, uh, different kinds of systems. Uh, so I think that the um, at first it's cool, but I think that serverless is going to become uh, the the ultimate uh, solution for uh, figuring out how to run microservices uh, within an organization. I think that um, being able to um, understand how to decompose monolithic applications into microservices is going to become uh, more and more prevalent. We're going to see that popping up. Um, I think that one of the trends that Martin Fowler, Fowler has um, uh, identified, I've, I've seen this myself, is that people who are trying to build applications from the ground up um, using microservices are not going to succeed. Hmm. People that um, mic- building a microservices architecture uh, from the start sounds like a great idea, hmm. but ends up in practice being much, much more difficult um, and uh, less successful than taking existing monolithic app- monolithic mm. applications and decomposing them um, into microservices. Uh, I've seen that myself um, uh, as well. And I think that's going to be another uh, interesting trend is, is, is that uh, the, the, Unsuccess of starting with with uh, microservices is going to be an interesting trend in the next year as well. Hmm. And as a sort of final question, direct, directly related to to you and to Atomic, uh, how how will these these trends of these two platforms affect what you do in the next year as a company or personally? Well, I think that. Uh, the concept um, of containers allows for a separation between developers and uh, execution of the application. Mm. Um, it, it naturally lends itself towards uh, developers working within the containers and administrators working outside of the containers. Uh, and as we talked about earlier, uh, Kubernetes, Mesos, um, all these new orchestration technologies are uh, really taking off and becoming more and more prevalent, um, which to me makes um, kind of the tools that run uh, the orchestration that much more important. Um, for, for so many years, um, people have had kind of uh, a reaction towards the system administrators uh, of the world that I don't think is, is well-deserved. I think that system administrators have kind of uh, never really received kind of the praise that uh, developers have. Mm. Developers have kind of been the kingpins of the technology world and system uh, administrators (laughs) are, are kind of uh, the forgotten group that, that are in, in many ways getting marginalized, um, they're being shoved tools like uh, Jenkins and, and Chef and Puppet <laughs> and said, hey, figure this stuff out. This is your job now. Yeah. Uh, you know, but frankly, those tools were built by developers and for developers. Yeah. And they were not built. Uh, they're not great tools for running things like Kubernetes. They're not um, well suited for um, complex deployment processes. Yeah. They were suited for 
rapid development prototyping. That's not the same concerns as uh, putting stuff into production on complex um, uh, real-world systems where you have thousands upon thousands of applications and, and thousands of servers. So uh, I think that there's a, a increasing need to have uh, modern tools uh, for the modern system administrators, the modern IT operations people, uh, to be able to run these things at scale uh, in a way that is uh, sustainable, manageable, and uh, and built by built for the needs of IT operations. So uh, I think that companies like Atomic are really here to fill the gap between uh, the the explosive technology leaps that have been going on over the last three years mm. uh, and how to run and manage those in production because the open source tools that uh, are a cool name brand uh, are great for running on your laptop. Mm. Uh, they are not great for uh, <laughs> managing clusters. I, I, you, you surprised me. I, I couldn't imagine that would be the, why that, how that would no. I was about to try and make a joke and then lost the punchline. But, uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine why anyone would have ever thought that would have been the case. But, yeah, I, I, and I've had um, experiences of trying to demonstrate tools like that on a laptop, and it's also that way around uh, a pain. It's hard to demonstrate things like Kubernetes or Mesos on a, you know, a, a $2,000 laptop because that's not really what it was meant for. <laughs> yep. Or you're just running Kubernetes to run, like, a WordPress installation, which is... Not yeah, exactly. really any point. So, <laughs> so, so it's, uh, yeah, it's sort of horses for courses and uh, the right tools for the right people and the right jobs. But um, yeah, I think, exactly. uh, I think actually you've, you've probably, um, um, ex- you've put better one of predictions on um, our podcast that I did at the end of last year, which was around kind of consolidation of, uh, tooling and options on tooling and frameworks and things like that. It wasn't a prediction I necessarily thought would happen, but it's a prediction I would like to happen. <laughs> so, um, yep. and, and I think you've put it in a, in a better way actually in this specific, in this specific area. Um, that just consolidating tooling to suit the people who use it as opposed to the people who made it, which, We've done yes. outside of developer tools for, for a long time. Well, we've tried to anyway. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, um, thank you very much for your time. Um, just to sort of wrap up, um, we've mentioned you and the, the company a little bit, but just maybe just to very clearly state uh, where people can find you and how to get in touch with you. Yeah. Um- <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, currently working at Atomic, uh, Senior Vice President of Strategy. And, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty easy to, to find me if you just Google Lucas Carlson. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time. Have a good year. And maybe we'll talk again in, in, in uh, 365 days. <laughs>